Before we begin, this episode contains some offensive language and descriptions of violence. It may not be appropriate for all listeners. So good to see you. You do, baby. How oh, are you? It's wonderful to see you. This cannot be the glow. This is the glow. I know, it's not. This is the new glow. This is my former colleague, Eileen McNamara. We worked together for years. I love the fact that you're a fucking podcaster. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's kind of hilarious. Eileen is a legend here in Boston and at the Globe. It is, she, she started in the 70s and, and rose from newsroom secretary to Pulitzer Prize winning columnist. She was a Metro reporter in 1989 when Chuck Stewart made his fateful 911 call and turned the city upside down. It was frankly a level of hysteria about this shooting that struck me right away as different. You just could feel it in the room. I had delivered my two children at Brigham and Women's, the most recent one, only months before this shooting. So I think that for a lot of white people, in greater Boston, this story resonated. We'd all parked in that parking garage. We took childbirth classes. We learned the Lamaze method at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Uh, It was personal. So Eileen understood the visceral way people responded to Carol's murder, but she was also a skeptical reporter. My notion is if the pack, the journalistic pack, is going north, it's a really good idea to go south. And so, while every other journalist in the city was chasing the news of the Stewart shooting, Eileen paused for a second and wondered, is there anything we're missing? And I had no idea whether anybody else had been killed in Boston that night. I just said, I'd like to check and see if somebody else died that night that we maybe overlooked. Well, somebody else did die that night. A black man named James Moody. He was murdered. And no one was talking about him. So she went out and found his loved ones. And I would like you to read, if you would, a little snippet of your story. I will, if you let me put on my glasses. Stuck in my head. There were no cameras clicking, no mini cams rolling at the city morgue when Sandra Williams identified the body of the man who shared her apartment near Franklin Park. James Moody, 29, was shot to death only a few hours after a robber attacked Carolyn Charles Stewart outside Brigham and Women's Hospital Monday night. But no calls were heard at the Statehouse for tougher sentencing practices. No news conferences were convened to mark lone black man's passing. And no mayor called about my loss, Williams said as she waited yesterday for Moody's mother to arrive from Memphis to take her son's body home. Eileen's story appeared on the front page of the Boston Globe just a few days after the Stewart shooting. I didn't know enough about James Moody to know all of his life story, but I thought if we actually believed that a life is a life, it would have been interesting if we had bothered to record it, and we didn't. The Boston Globe did not record his death at the time that it happened. Um, That tells you something obvious. His life didn't have the same value that Carol DeMacy Stewart's life had. It simply didn't. The blowback was swift. People hated her story. They were deeply offended by her comparison of Carol DeMacy Stewart to James Moody. Black Boston got it. White Boston was pissed. It was a comparison that just simply could not be made. 
And it wasn't just readers that were angry. Other reporters were furious too. Eileen had come into the newsroom early on the day her story ran, and by lunchtime, she couldn't stand the barrage of criticism anymore. Her editor, Greg Moore, took her to lunch. And I believe the lunch was liquid, by and large. Because he had really spent the day answering the telephone, having people scream at him for running the James Moody story. And I had spent the morning listening to people yelling at me for writing that story. Eileen wasn't the only person who recognized the hypocrisy. Carol's murder was tragic, and her pregnancy made it more so. But there were lots of tragedies in Boston. By 1990, Boston had over 150 homicides annually, almost half of which involved someone 18 or younger. Neil Sullivan was Mayor Ray Flynn's right-hand man. He remembers Flynn's whole staff being annoyed that the mayor had gone on TV the night of the murder and called for every available detective to join the hunt for the killer. It wasn't a good look. So Neil reached out directly to Boston's police commissioner, Mickey Roach. I called Mickey the next morning and I said, it ain't hard, find me a black man who got killed last night and assign as many detectives to that case as you're assigning to Demady Stewart. It's our only defense. Voters had elected Neil's boss, Mayor Ray Flynn, twice on his platform to heal Boston's notorious racial divide. It was a tall order, but after six years in office, Neil felt like they were finally starting to make progress. Under pressure, they had desegregated the city's public housing projects, fought racist redlining by banks, and cracked down on racial violence. We were feeling pretty good about our ability to do most anything to conquer most any issue. And then, all of a sudden, we're on national television with a 911 call with a man saying in his dying breaths that his wife had just been murdered and a black man did it. Neil worried that this would resurrect the racial tribalism of Boston's not-too-distant past. A black man, a defenseless white woman, pregnant, no less. It was the thing we feared most. (laughs) And this could be the spark that lit the fire again. The whole narrative that we had fought so hard to suppress was about to explode. Over here, folks, we can see, of course, the old state house. Boston is a city that is very proud of its history. You can't walk through downtown without seeing some dude dressed up like a revolutionary war hero leading a flock of tourists along the Freedom Trail. Now, you can also see that balcony there. The balcony there where the Declaration of Independence was first read to the people of Boston on the 18th of July in 1776. This is the city where abolitionists conspired and where Harriet Tubman came to raise money for the Underground Railroad. Frederick Douglass gave landmark speeches just down the street from the Globe's newsroom. Martin Luther King preached, lived, and fell in love here. And the estrangement of the races in the North can be as devastating as the segregation of the races in the South. That's him addressing state lawmakers. He also led a march to the Boston Common at the height of the Civil Rights Movement. There's another uglier history here, too. And that's the one we're going to tell you about now. 
because all the people you're hearing from in this podcast, this is the history that shaped them. And it was still very much alive on the night Carol Stewart was murdered. Fifteen years earlier, race had ripped the city apart. It all stemmed from efforts to desegregate the city's schools. Yes, you heard that right. Until 1974, Boston still had white schools and black schools. When a federal judge ordered the city to start busing black kids to white schools and white kids to black schools, white parents revolted. This was a white protest with white Americans clinging to their patriotism. The speakers said it was the judges that had sold America down the river. Screaming crowds of white adults whipped rocks at school buses full of black children. There were stabbings and shootings and marches on City Hall. A lot of parents, white and black, stopped sending their kids to school altogether. This era here goes by one word, busing. Why Boston of all places? Why did the greatest resistance to school busing happen in a city that is the epitome of liberty, justice, and the equality of man? Busing was a slap in the face to every black person. And everyone knew those videos. Black kids on buses surrounded by incredibly angry white people. That's seminal to everything that has happened in this town since. When I came to Boston in the 80s, there were two things I knew about the city. Birthplace of the American Revolution and busing. In my Globe columns, I've called it Boston's Civil War. That's how intense the battles were between white people and black folks. The TV footage of the conflict changed how America thought about Boston. And it changed the way Boston saw itself. We always thought we got along. We thought this was a good place. Had no idea how deeply they hated us until 74. It is the definition of race in Boston, uh, and it is a legacy which cannot be denied. And when it is denied or not understood, then everything that happens afterwards doesn't make a lot of sense. So we start there. Indeed, we need to start there. These are the raw nerves that the shooting exposed. Carol Stewart's murder hit at the heart of Boston's most bitter divisions and reopened a wound that was just barely beginning to heal. I'm a speak upon. I'm Adrian Walker, and this is Murder in Boston, the untold story of the Charles and Carol Stewart shooting. Episode 3, Boston's Backstory. Everybody's heard of Brown versus Board of Education, the 1954 Supreme Court decision that deemed segregated schools unconstitutional. This decision produced some of our most iconic images of American racism. Like that photograph of Ruby Bridges, a tiny black six-year-old in shiny Mary Janes and ankle socks, being escorted by U.S. Marshals into an all-white elementary school in Louisiana. Or Alabama Governor George Wallace, physically blocking the doorway of the University of Alabama to keep black students out. Segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. There were no scenes like that in Boston, but it wasn't because the city had peacefully integrated its schools. It was because Boston just didn't bother to desegregate. After the historic Supreme Court decision ruling segregated schools unconstitutional, 
A U.S. government report shows most of the all-black schools in the U.S. are in northern cities. In Boston, segregation wasn't the stated law of the land, but it was absolutely a fact on the ground. And the schools for the black kids were just plain terrible. Black parents were pissed. They wanted better for their children. My whole life has been um, pointed in that direction and the improvement of education for black kids. Ruth Batson was a mother of three from a mostly black neighborhood of Boston. She was instrumental in the fight to desegregate the city's schools. In 1963, she and other activists had brought their concerns to the Boston School Committee. Where there were a majority of black students, there was not concern for how these kids learned that there were crowded classrooms, temporary teachers, not enough books, and supplies were low and all of that kind of thing. Even physical conditions were poor. These kinds of basic things were missing. So um, we went before the school committee and we said to them that this condition that we were talking about was called de facto segregation. The all-white Boston School Committee had resisted desegregation for many years at that point. And this time was no different. Ruth and her fellow activists were completely ignored. Black parents were at the end of their rope. So, in 1972, the Boston chapter of the NAACP sued. To some extent, uh, this whole thing is about an effort to complete the Civil War that politically was resolved, but um, in terms of all of the attitudes and behavior patterns, never ended. This is Tom Atkins, a lead lawyer for the NAACP. People do not understand that, for the most part, black communities are totally unwilling, totally unwilling to accept anything less than full participation in this society. This was the lawsuit that would lead to busing. The court case lasted for two years, And when it was over, in June of 74, a federal judge named W. Arthur Garrity Jr. ruled in favor of the NAACP. He said the Boston School Committee had been running a dual school system, one for black kids and one for white. He found it systematic, intentional, and illegal. Garrity's solution was black kids to white schools and white kids to black schools. Because, you know, whenever you you drop a bunch of black kids in a white neighborhood, it's going to be some problems. Ron Bell was 11 when the busing decision came down. He was in the sixth grade in Mission Hill, and he was bused to a white school in a white neighborhood called Brighton. We went through the era of rocks being thrown at us by adults. It was a terrible time. 18,000 kids crisscrossed the city in yellow school buses. But your bus wasn't getting rocked or anything like that. My bus got rocked and the white boys spit on me. The black and white students of Ron's new school might have shared a building, but it didn't bring them any closer together. During busing, they would ring the fire alarm. We would go out, fight, you know, what have you. And then I had to go in with all the white kids. This rage, it permeated everything. It trickled down even in the neighborhoods, the classrooms, you know, wherever you was at. That, that racial tension was there. Ron couldn't even escape it when he went home at the end of the day. The racial divisions had always been stark in Mission Hill. The white kids lived in nice houses at the top of the hill, and the black kids lived in the housing projects below. There would be racial 
attention and fights going on in this community. So that was just like the whole atmosphere in the city of Boston. As Ron passes a tavern on Tremont Street, he slows down. That bar there, that's just true shine in that one. There's would be the hitching post here. There's another bar, right the here. Putting Stone Tavern. His childhood is marked by memories so like this one. At this bar, he used to walk by on his way to the Cub Scouts, where the white men would spit on him. Even like when I'm walking down here, when I tell you about like going by that bar, you know, you can still feel that, man. We would say my country tis at the sweet land of liberty, but I'm smelling of lick and spit every Wednesday as a child. Fall of 74 was brutal. At first, the worst of the violence was in South Boston, or Southie, as everybody calls it. For a lot of people outside Massachusetts, when they conjure up an image of Boston, they're picturing Southie. It's this little closed fist of a neighborhood. Southie was working class and poor with its own all-white projects, and black people simply did not go there. Bro, you ain't going to no damn Southie. All I got was the message that we all get. Whatever you do, don't go to South Boston. If you go to Southie, something bad might happen. You never went to Southie. You couldn't never. go to Southie without Pierre getting hurt. He really wasn't hanging out in D Street in Southie. But now, black kids are being bused in mass to attend Southie's neighborhood schools. Nowhere is busing fought harder than in the Catholic neighborhoods of Boston. When the buses arrived, the black students ran into the school under a hail of verbal abuse. The violence, of course, came in the afternoon when the buses were stoned and black children injured. They were throwing eggs at the window and trying to hit people with them. And while we was in school, there was stone glass at black people and little kids. Are you coming back to school tomorrow? No. No way. We go to the bathroom and, you know, catch a smoke before we go to class. You know, all of a sudden, white girls coming from all directions in the bathroom, you know. I mean, they jumped us. I had bruises all over my chest. My my lip was way out here. My, my forehead, my knee was busted. Black parents agonized over whether to keep sending their kids to school. Blood is blood. There's no such thing as a blue blood. Everybody has red blood. Nobody wants to see it flowing. My child bleed and your child bleed. When my child hurt, I hurt. When her child hurt, she hurt. So did white parents. Let us go to our neighborhoods where our kids are safe. We want our kids safe. I'm not for this. I don't care. My one will not go to school. But it's tearing them apart. In early December, three months into busing, a black student stabbed a white student inside Southie High. Until this moment, it had been hard to imagine the crisis could get worse. But when news of the stabbing got around Southie, thousands of adults, including a horde of picketing longshoremen, left their jobs in the middle of the day and gathered in front of the school. They waited for the school buses that would carry the black kids home. They vowed to attack. Police sent decoy buses to the front of the school. The rioters shattered the windows and flung cans and bottles at the cops, while the black students were whisked out the back door. And they ran us off the buses and they ran us out of the school. And and everything was just trying to hurt us. 
And so another school day ends here at South Boston High School with the black kids taken back to the neighborhoods with police escorts and buses. In fact, the whole place looks more like a concentration camp with armed guards, more so than a school. But this was not the end. Not by a long shot. The violence spread through the city, and this went on for years. The modern history of Boston really begins with busing. Those images of those white parents, that's where it really starts. I mean, Boston was Boston before that in a lot of ways, but my uncles and my parents used to say all the time, we never knew how much they hated us until then. Howard Bryant is a journalist and author born and raised in Boston. There are black people around this country who always viewed black Bostonians as really snobbish compared to other black people. And the reason was because black people in this region had accomplished so much. Our station had been pretty good compared to the other stations of black people around the country. My family was proud of being here. My family talked about the Boston schools at first. My mother went to Burke, you know, my cousins went to school in the city. And my grandparents talked about how this was a place that gave you chances to do things. That history, black people carried with them until busing. It wasn't until busing that the truth became clear. Every black person in Boston found out that you're still black. As we used to say, you must have forgot. All of us had forgotten in so many ways. There is one image from this time that is impossible to forget. It's a Pulitzer Prize-winning photograph taken directly in front of Boston City Hall about two years into the strife of busing in 1976. It shows a black lawyer in a three-piece suit being viciously attacked by white teenagers. And it belongs alongside those photographs of Ruby Bridges and Governor George Wallace in the dark pantheon of depictions of American racism. The man in the photo is Ted Landsmark. I was on my way into City Hall. The meeting was at 10 o'clock and I was running late. And so it was about 10.10. And because I was late, I I really wasn't paying a lot of attention to the circumstances uh, around me. Ted had moved to Boston from Harlem just a few years earlier. He wasn't directly involved in any busing litigation, but he watched as his new city convulsed with fear and hatred. Where were you headed that day when you were walking across the plaza? Ironically, I was on my way to a meeting at the city's planning agency to advocate on behalf of increasing the amount of employment of people of color in neighborhoods of color in uh, public projects in Boston. So Ted was in a rush, and he didn't really register that white anti-busing protesters were swarming City Hall Plaza. Remember, this is two years in. These demonstrations were part of the daily scenery. But Ted was a flashy dresser. So much so that a white lawyer at his firm had pulled him aside and told him, watch yourself. I was shopping in the discount store, Filene's Basement, and buying very nice and well-cut Italian suits at a deep discount. 
and he advised me to uh, begin to wear more traditional Brooks Brothers suits so that I wouldn't stand out too much as among my lawyer peers. Ted didn't want to dress down. Because once I got out of the projects and got exposed to other things, it struck me that I wanted to have a few of the nice things that wealthier people had. And so, as Ted hurried across the plaza in his wool suit, he attracted the attention of some teenagers in the white crowd. And then a couple of them started shouting, um, uh, there's one, uh, let's get him. And they used the N-word to describe me. He doesn't remember how big the group was, but one of them was carrying an American flag on a flagpole. And then uh, a few of them, including the flag bearer, came running back to attack me. They surrounded him and started punching and kicking him. They knocked his glasses off and broke his nose. The entire incident took place in less than 10 seconds. It's a fleeting moment, but a photographer is there to capture it. On one side of the frame, Ted Landsmark is frozen in motion mid-attack. He's stumbling backwards, his perfectly pressed suit crumpled up. And on the other side, a white teenager lunges, wielding the flagpole like a spear. The pointed tip is aimed right at Ted's gut. The flag flutters between them. This image became known as the soiling of old glory, and it rocketed around the world. All right, my friend, we are on City Hall Plaza. It's the literal scene of the crime. Can you show us where it happened? Sure. Yeah, let's, let's walk in the direction of the incident. I asked Ted to take me back here to City Hall Plaza on a day where some guy was playing a tuba. This is the place where his personal story and the city's history intersect so vividly. We are in an area of City Hall Plaza that funnels into a side entrance to City Hall. These days, Ted is in his 70s and a professor of public policy. I got to this point when the young people turned the corner. Although the attack happened more than four decades ago, it's like the ghost of it is still there. The flag bearer had passed me, and he was probably 20 feet past me. And he actually circled back and uh, turned and came back to attack me with the flag. 12 years after being attacked in front of City Hall, Ted began working there, inside the building, for Ray Flint. I found it extremely difficult to walk through this space for years after I would find a different way of getting into City Hall other than uh, walking through this passageway. How long did that go on? I would say my reluctance to walk through here went on at least five or six years. gentlemen, tonight, Boston 
made history. Ray Flynn was elected Boston's mayor in 1983. We have a united city where the voice of every neighborhood in this city has been heard. We have proven, we have proven that the hopes that unite us are stronger than the fears that separate us. The scars of busing were barely healing when Flynn took office, and he promised new days were ahead. People liked Ray Flynn, even though he was a Southie guy and the whole thing. That One thing that I remember about Ray Flynn was Ray Flynn was caught. Ray Flynn was always stuck in the middle. Author Howard Bryant remembers a feeling of cautious optimism in the black community. By the time he took over, as mayor, considered himself a healer. And I think a lot of people in Boston wanted to believe him. Sure, he was a white guy from Southie, that working-class Irish neighborhood so staunchly opposed to outsiders. As one former newscaster put it, if Norman Rockwell wanted to do a portrait to capture a kid in South Boston, he should have had Ray Flynn sit for him. But Flynn was more nuanced than some of his predecessors. In Boston, you never thought you were going to get anything but an Irish mayor anyway. And Ray Flynn was considered one of the good ones. He was considered one of the progressive, one of the reformers, one of the ones who was trying to change the perception of the city. The problem was, like his many angry white constituents from Southie, Mayor Flynn had opposed busing just a few years earlier. Ray Flynn realized that he had to distance himself from the losing argument in Southie that they were going to fight to the end on busing. It's almost like the holding on to the Confederacy in a way. It was over. Life was going to move on. Busing was going to move forward. City was going to move on. Flynn thought of himself as someone who could bridge the divide. But he also knew he had Southie to answer to. He also knew he had the entire white community to answer to. Ray Flynn was caught. I always felt like he was in a really, really difficult position because we all know if you advocate too much for black people, especially in Boston, you're a dead man in this town. It's Flynn's hometown, but Southie booed and jeered Mayor Flynn last night. One angry resident asked if Flynn was so interested in integration, when was he moving to Roxbury? I've lived in South Boston all my life. My wife was born in South Boston. My children were born in South Boston. And I will live in South Boston all my life. I'd seen Mayor Flynn in his political brilliance, move quickly to cut off the opposition, to hold people across racial lines, to preempt what had begun to feel like the Boston virus of racial conflict. Flynn's top deputy, Neil Sullivan, remembers the pressure to heal the wounds created by busing. We were racking up over 600 documented incidents of racial violence, 77, 78, 79, 80, 81. People were getting hurt. Perpetrators were making it clear they were being hurt specifically because of their race, black or white. That's how out of control this city was. Every time there was a incident of racial violence, the mayor and I were both informed. <laughs> And Ray Flynn went to the scene. 
to denounce racial violence. He did it over and over and over again. And that was as much to tell everybody, this is what we're doing until this settles down. Neil says it was starting to work, that history was going to show Flynn and his team were making things better. Until the night, Carol Stewart was killed. Boston recorder, emergency, fire went down. My, my wife's been shot, I've been shot. Where is this, sir? I, I have no idea, I'm off. I've been coming from Tremont, uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital. Oh my goodness, this is gonna allow our political opposition to organize the good church-going people of Boston's neighborhoods along racial lines. Here we go again. And we were going through an extremely, extremely volatile period, almost like a reckoning, that it was heading in this direction. It was all coming to a head in the late 1980s. Everything is building up to this moment in terms of how we really felt about each other. And this was the stick of dynamite that finally went off. It's out of the news, but it's still in my head. Topping News 7 tonight, Boston police remain tight-lipped about what could be a major break in the investigation into the shootings of Chuck and Carol Stewart. Immediately, people call for blood. Immediately, cops are pressed to find the shooter. And inside an interrogation room, police are pressuring witnesses. Today is November 3rd, and it's Friday evening. We're at the homicide unit at District 6. Give the tape recorder your name and talk loud to me. That's on the next episode of Murder in Boston. I'm going to speak upon Murder in Boston, the untold story of the Charles and Carol Stewart shooting is presented by the Boston Globe and HBO Documentary Films. This podcast was reported and written by Globe journalists Evan Allen, Elizabeth Coe, Andrew Ryan, and me, your host, Associate Editor Adrian Walker. The project was led and also co-written by Assistant Managing Editor Brendan McCarthy and the Globe's Head of Audio, Kristen Nelson. Nelson served as Senior Producer. Melissa Rosales is the Associate Producer. Our theme music is Speak Upon It by Boston's own Ed O.G. Reza Daya is our sound designer. Voiceover direction by Athena Karkanis. Research from Jeremiah Mannion. Fact-checking by Matt Mahoney. The Globe's executive editor is Nancy Barnes. Thanks to former Globies Brian McGrory and Scott Allen and to Boston Globe Media CEO Linda Henry. Additional interviews and audio courtesy of Jason Hayer and Little Room Films. Special thanks to Michael Gluckstadt and Allison Cohen on the HBO podcast team. The HBO documentary series Murder in Boston, Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning is available to stream on Maps. <laughs>